Today, we're going to be looking at another metaphor for the church, which is the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. We've already learned about church as being the body of Christ, and we've heard about the church as being the household of God or the temple of God. And today, we're arriving at this great mystery of a metaphor as Kerry read in Ephesians 5. It's a mystery. It's a, it's a vast and deep topic to talk about. But this is talking about the bride of Christ. And so get yourselves ready. There's going to be too much for me to cover. So I'm going to have to leave stuff out. This is such a broad, deep, and heavy, amazing subject that I'm going to ask you in your own time this week to pray and read through this for yourselves because there is so much depth to it. I hope and pray it will encourage you. We're going to be looking at a few themes, brothers and sisters. We're going to be looking, firstly, at Jesus himself, at Jesus himself as being the bridegroom. How many of you have heard of that being a thing before? Jesus is the bridegroom. We're going to look at what that means. We're going to see also that the church, both the visible church, what we see here at Hope City Church, and the universal church that we can't ever see, both are called in Scripture the Bride of Christ. And so you, church, are his bride. You are betrothed to the bridegroom. <laughs> and that is a deep and profound mystery. We're going to look at that. We're going to hear also about the jealous love of Christ for his people, for you. How many of you understand that you are loved by Jesus? You are not just tolerated by Jesus. And that sometimes is a, a wonderful truth to remind yourself of. I often go through the week tolerating myself. How many of you just barely manage to tolerate yourself? <laughs> it's hard, isn't it, sometimes? I, I sometimes struggle to love Graham Phillips, but, but Jesus loves me. Can you say that? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you very much. And we're going to learn about his love for his people today. We're going to learn about Jesus' work in purifying his bride today. In making us pure and spotless before him. We're also going to talk a little bit about something called a betrothal period. It's not really something that we so much do here. We have an engagement period where, you know, if you've married yourself or you know people who've been married, there's an engagement period. But in Jesus' time, there was something called a betrothal period, and it's slightly different. And we're going to learn about that period and what that means for us as his church. And what's really interesting as well is that you know how we learned when we learned about the body of Christ, we talked about the church and Hope City Church even. Not being an organization, but being an organism. It's a body. It's a living thing. And so you can hurt it. Uh, you can make it be more healthy. You can be, make it be more sick. Okay? It's an organism. It's a living thing. We learn in the temple of God about each of you being living stones, being fitted together by Christ. And we're a building together, but we're living. And so you see these names give us a different kind of angle to which through which to look at the church. And today, the bride of Christ, there is an eschatological flavor to this name. Eschatolo eschatological means 
last things, doesn't it? So there's like an end times flavor to this name. When we look at what it means to be the bride of Christ, we're talking not just about the present moment in history, but we're also looking back to when the bridegroom came the first time and he instituted the marriage. He presented himself. He proposed to his people when he came first time. But he's going to come back, isn't he? He's going to come back. And when he does, there's going to be a wedding. There's going to be a wedding. In fact, the theologian Herman Bavink, he said that human history began with a wedding and it's going to end with a wedding. It began in Eden with Adam and Eve becoming one flesh. It's going to end with Christ and his bride becoming one flesh. So isn't that wonderful to think of? That the end of history, the end of human history is going to end with a wedding feast. How many of you love a wedding feast? Weddings, as I get older, are more and more enjoyable. Uh, because I went for a season when all of my friends were getting married. Uh, it just kind of happens in your 20s and 30s. And um, I was always doing something. Every wedding, always super busy. Uh, and now, occasionally, I'm getting to just attend them and just be a consumer, and it's awesome. Anyway, <laughs> enough about that. Um, so this imagery of Christ being the bridegroom and us being the church, it pops up a number of times in the New Testament. In fact, the phrase bride of Christ actually doesn't pop up, but the imagery is, is everywhere. It's everywhere. In fact, we see it in Ephesians 5, as we've just read. It's also in 2 Corinthians 11. It's in Revelation 19. How many of you know that scripture? Uh, where it's Christ and his bride. And there's also an allusion to it in Matthew chapter 25. Do you remember the story of the ten virgins? There were five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. And so we're going to look a little bit into each one of those scriptures in the remaining half an hour that we have to try and learn what it is for us here in the 21st century to be the bride of Christ. Amen. Because I hope you're going to leave today, not just with head knowledge, but I hope you're going to leave today knowing what it means to be betrothed to one husband. I hope you leave today realizing that you're literally betrothed to Christ personally and as part of this body. What's interesting is that this metaphor of God having a bride isn't just in the New Testament either. Did you know that it's in the Old Testament as well? God is said to have a wife in a number of prophetic books in the Old Testament. Who knows which they are? Song of Solomon, yes. The whole of Song of Solomon, you could say, is one long allegory for Christ and the church. The Song of Solomon, we've got quotes from that later. What other books in the Old Testament do you think might talk about God and his bride? Pardon? Yeah, Hosea. Hosea has a long, long metaphor in the first three chapters. I encourage you to read that. It's quite sobering reading. And you know what Hosea did? He, he took, God told him to take for himself an unchaste woman. Because we've got a child in here, I won't explain exactly what that means. But you know what I'm talking about. And God says, marry this unchaste woman and treat her as your wife and be faithful to her. And what was the picture there? What was God trying to teach Hosea? He was trying to teach him about Israel, wasn't he? How unfaithful Israel was and how faithful God remained to her, despite all of her infidelity. It also appears in Jeremiah as well. 
God as the bridegroom, Israel as the wife. And so this metaphor of bride of Christ, this language isn't just New Testament language, it goes way back into the Old Testament. This idea of God being a bridegroom and his chosen people being literally his wife. Isn't that incredible language when we think about it, when we pause to think about the way that we're spoken about? Because we've now been what? Grafted in. We've been grafted into Israel. We are God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people. And so as we're grafted in, we become that same chosen people. We become part of his bride as we are grafted in. And so I think it's going to help us today before we really dive into these scriptures to learn something about marriage. It's going to help us to learn something about what marriage and that process of getting married looked like in Jesus' time. Because things are slightly different in Western Europe. Uh, We don't do things exactly the same. And so I think it's going to help us in a moment to jump into what that looks like. But to begin with, we know that Scripture speaks about marriage as being the most intimate relationship that two humans can ever have. It isn't just like a friendship. It's not just a deep friendship. But the Bible speaks about marriage as literally being a one flesh union. One flesh. Two individuals come together and they become one. There's no other relationship that's spoken about like marriage in the scriptures. It's the most intimate expression of human relationship that is possible. And actually, it's this union that Paul and the apostles use to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, just let me take one second to really get across what I'm saying here, okay? Two individuals coming together and becoming one entity, one flesh, indissoluble. It's like when you know you mix water and fruit juice together. You can't separate those two things again, can you? They are now one. They're Ribena in a cup. You can't separate the water from the Ribena again. And that's what the Bible says about marriage. Once Dean and Ruth were married, in God's eyes, they are now one flesh. There is no more individual Ruth and individual Dean. They are together one flesh. And that's what God says about Jesus and his church. When we're united to him, it's impossible then to separate out Christ and his church. They are one flesh. Paul says the mystery is profound. I can't pretend to explain to you how that all works and and what that means in its entirety. Because even the Apostle Paul says the mystery is profound. But Christ and his church are joined together in a one flesh union cannot be separated. It's indissoluble. And what's really cool is that the relationship between him, our Lord, and us, the church, is not just described as master and servant, or teacher and student, but husband and wife. 
it's often a metaphor that blokes struggle with because they immediately think of themselves dressed in a wedding frock. But this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible teaches. And there's such beauty to it when we really understand it. So when we get born again, when we get saved, we're not just forgiven of our sins. We're not even just born again. And we're not even just adopted into God's family, but we're literally betrothed to him as his bride. So let's talk a bit about Jewish marriage to try and set the scene a little bit. Because it's slightly different to the way we do things, as I've said. Because Jewish marriage in Jesus' time, it didn't begin with one man kind of chilling in a cafe and then just watching some beautiful girl come past and say, oh, she's nice. I'm going to have to go and speak to her really awkwardly um, so that she rejects me um, and then try again a week later and try again and try again and try again. That's not actually how marriage started in those days. Marriages were arranged. And actually, they were arranged a long time, often before the bride and the bridegroom were mature. Often it happened when they were children, sometimes even before they were born. Families would agree and say, our son is going to marry your daughter. And it was a done deal. And so isn't that very different to the way that we do things here? Can you imagine that? But um, there was an introduction and there was an opportunity for the potential bride to refuse. If she felt it wasn't a good fit, uh, she could say, I, 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 have, I don't want this. So they had an opportunity themselves to choose whether they wanted to go ahead with the marriage. So there was an introduction and there was an opportunity for the bride to say yes or say no to the potential suitor. If the proposal, the marriage proposal was accepted, there would then be this thing called a dowry that was paid. A dowry would be paid by the bridegroom to the family of the bride to essentially secure the marriage to secure the marriage. And both parties, the bride and groom, would then enter into what's called a betrothal period. Now, a betrothal period in Jewish culture is a bit different to just being engaged. It actually was a time when the bridegroom, he would go off and he would go and prepare a, a place for him and his family to live. He'd go and build a house, he would go and prepare a place for him and his wife and his future family to live. And during that time, the bride, she would prepare herself for the big day. She would actually handcraft very often her own wedding dress. She would get her bridal party ready um, because the husband could come at any time. He could come back as soon as his work was done. His, his party could come and they could collect the bride-to-be. And they could take her off and have the wedding. So that could come at any time. So she needed to remain in readiness for him to come. There was, there was no kind of like two-year wait. Um, you know, some people, they get engaged these days, and it could be like five years before they get married. And they've set a date, and that's the date. Whereas it was a bit different in Jewish culture. As soon as the bridegroom was ready and the house was complete, they would come and collect the bride. And then there was this celebration where the bridegroom would arrive to collect his bride and there'd be great fanfare. We're going to talk about that and look at that in Matthew 25 
where the bridegroom and his party would arrive and there would be lamps and there would be a big kind of ceremony. He would come and collect his bride-to-be and they would go to the wedding feast, sometimes at the bridegroom's father's house, sometimes at a different location. Now, I don't know when you've been listening to me explain some of those things, whether you might have seen any parallels already in between Christ and the church. You probably have already begun to see some parallels there, and we're supposed to. Because just as there was this arrangement, a long time before the two parties, the husband-to-be and the bride-to-be, a long time before they were mature, the marriage was already arranged. The marriage was already arranged. It was foreordained by the parents. And we read about this, don't we, in Ephesians chapter 1. Even as he, that is God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see that? The marriage was arranged before any of this existed. Before ever there was a planet Earth, before ever there was a Milky Way, before ever there was a solar system, you personally were betrothed in God's predestination to himself, to his son. Isn't that amazing? The father chose the bride before the foundation of the world. He chose one bride as well. Just as a husband gets to choose who his wife will be. A husband doesn't marry every woman, does he? That's ridiculous. When I got married, my relationship changed with Becca, but it also changed in regards to every other woman. I'm married to one woman. I'm not married to every woman. And the same is true of Christ. He has one bride. He's not, he's not bridegroom to the whole world. John 17 actually says, Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those the Father has given me out of the world. And so Christ has one bride. And that bride was chosen by his Father before the foundation of the world. And he's chosen individuals from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. The bride is going to be one, but she's going to be unique. She's going to be diverse. She's going to be taken from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And next, after this arrangement, there's an introduction. Just as the world, uh, sorry, just as the husband and the bride have a chance to meet one another, so Christ and his bride had a, an opportunity to meet one another. We read in John 1, verse 9 to 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born, not of blood, nor of the will, sorry, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Christ came into the world, manifested in the flesh, in the flesh rather, to introduce himself to us. 
And we have the opportunity now in this time to accept him or to reject him. That's the time that we live in. We then read, there was a, in the Jewish wedding ceremony, there was a dowry that could be paid. If the proposal was accepted, a dowry would then be paid by the bridegroom to the bride's family. When Christ came, introduced himself to the world, gave himself up for the church. That's literally what it says, isn't it? In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up up for her. He didn't just say, hey, I love you. It wasn't just sentimental. It wasn't just about him expressing a deep feeling for his church, but he actually gave his life, blood for you. He's purchased his church with his own blood. He gave himself up for her. John 6 verse 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Christ has paid for his church with his own blood. The dowry that was paid was a guarantee that the bridegroom would remain faithful to the bride. He was, he was serious about this. And we know the Bible says that for all those who choose Christ, for all those of us who say yes to him, there's a dowry paid. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a seal or as a guarantee. Each of us receives a dowry. From Christ, the seal of the Holy Spirit, when we believe in him. And then finally, after we receive the dowry, there's this period that I mentioned called the, the betrothal period. And this is what I really want to talk about today, okay? The betrothal period was this time when the bridegroom went away. He went away to prepare a place for himself and his bride to be. So during that time, the bridegroom is left on her own. And she is left to prepare herself for the day when the bridegroom returns. Now we can already see the parallels here, can't we, between Christ and the church. We are in that time right now, that betrothal period. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this period is where we are right now, church. We are here in this betrothal period. For all of you who've accepted Christ, for all of you who've said, yes, I accept the bridegroom. How many of you have said yes to Jesus? Because when he comes back again, it's going to be too late. Some people think that they're going to be able to put off any kind of religiosity, any kind of Christianity until they're old. They bank that they're going to be given enough years that when they've had all their fun in this world, when they've done all that they want to do, when they've sinned in every single possible way that they want to sin, that God is going to give them their old age to choose Christ. And that when they're older, they'll settle down, they'll start going to church, and they'll do the whole Christian thing. 
Let me tell you, that is foolishness. It's foolishness. Tomorrow's not promised to any of us. And to bank on the fact that God is going to give you tomorrow and live today like a sinner is a foolish decision to make. Today is the day of salvation, isn't it? And right now, everybody in this world has an opportunity to say, I want to accept Christ. I want to be betrothed to him or not. And if you're here today and there's any doubt in your mind at all whether you've accepted him, I would encourage you strongly to do it. I would encourage you strongly to choose him today. The Bible says, doesn't it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who believe on him might not perish, might not perish, but have eternal life. What's the implication here? That all who do not believe in him will what? Will perish. People love John 3.16, but they don't ever go to John 3.36, which is the end of the very same chapter. It says that all who believe on Christ will have eternal life. All who reject him, the wrath of God remains on them. Today's the day of salvation. We are right now before the throne of grace. And there's an opportunity right now that will not be there when he returns again a second time. That will be it. That will be it. There will be no more opportunity for people to enter into that marital relationship with him. So in this period of time, the doors are open for people to come to Christ. And also the bride herself is to be getting herself ready. She is to be beautifying herself, purifying herself. She's, like Revelation says, she's making herself garments of fine linen. One thing that the the bride-to-be would do in Jesus' time is she'd walk around veiled. She'd walk around the streets veiled. And that was to show other men that she was off the market, that she was taken. She wasn't to appear attractive and alluring to other men. She was her husband's, her betrothed's possession. And she was readying herself for his return. So that's where we are as a church today. We're to be remaining in readiness for his second coming. We're to be making sure that the world knows we belong to Jesus. We don't belong to the world. We're not to be lifting up our skirts and trying to attract carnal, worldly people. But that's exactly what false teachers are doing right now. And this is what Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians 11, which we'll get to in a moment. But the church is Christ's bride. The church is not the world's possession. The church is not available. The church is taken. If you're in this church and you're a Christian, you belong to one bridegroom. You don't belong to the world any longer. And we're to live as such. You know, what's happening in the Church of England is horrendous right now. It's an abomination. And the reason it's happening is that false teachers have crept in. And they have risen through the ranks in the Church of England. And now they are telling the church that she's not attractive enough. She's too frumpy. She's too dowdy. 
She needs to be a, a little bit more like the world if she really wants to attract people. She needs to change her theology and her doctrine to be more in line with what the world believes and what the world teaches. And that if she does that, then she'll be more attractive. And so they have dressed the church up like a harlot. Do you think Jesus is going to be very pleased when he returns and finds his bride dressed like a harlot in order to try and attract carnal, worldly people? I don't think he's going to be really happy with that or with anyone that tries to do that because the church belongs to Christ. It's his bride. And the things that he desires are not the things that the world desires. Christ desires holiness, doesn't he? He desires purity. He desires meekness. He desires love, gentleness. He desires his bride to be chaste. And this is what happened time and time again with Israel, wasn't it? We read that she constantly went after other gods. The gods of the, of the world. The gods of the nations around her. She looked at their practices and said, I want to imitate what they're doing because whatever they're doing seems to be working for them. I'm going to do that. I'm going to mix following Yahweh with following the world and hopefully it will work out for me. It's never a good choice. And so I want to say for us as a church, our job is to remain pure. Our job is to remember that we belong to Christ and Christ alone. And not to mix our worship of him with worldly practices. And I would say that for you individually as well. The Bible says we're to be chaste, to be pure. Are you chaste? Are you pure? Or is there a mixture in your life? Is it Christ worship at the weekend and Baal worship on Monday? Is it church on Sunday? But the clubs and the pubs and the places you shouldn't be on a Wednesday. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to pubs, you know that. You'll never catch me saying that. But... <laughs> all in moderation <laughs> but we're to be making ourselves ready right you understand that we're to be making ourselves ready that's what the point of Matthew 25 is that's what the point of Matthew 25 is it says the kingdom of heaven will look like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the, the bridegroom five of them were foolish five of them were wise for when the foolish took their lamps they took no oil with them their one job was to have that lamp ready to light up so that they could go with the bridegroom's party to meet the bride. Guess what? They didn't even bother to bring any oil. What use is a lamp without oil? It's useless. It's just form. So many Christians these days have the bare form of religion, but no oil. They've got no fire, no power of the Holy Spirit, no passion for Jesus. All they do is they try to be a nice person. They try to do religious things. They tell people they're a Christian, but they don't live like a Christian. This is, this is the tragedy of this parable, actually, is that when the bridegroom comes, when the bridegroom comes and he returns, 
they say, please, give us some of your oil. And the, the five virgins that have oil say, I, we can't, no, no. And we look at it and we think, how harsh. Why didn't they just lend them some oil? And they said, no, go and get your own oil. The real meaning of this parable that we're supposed to understand is the impossibility of the action of giving somebody oil. You can't give somebody faith. You can't give somebody life, can you? It's impossible. If I say, give me your life, it doesn't make sense. And that's what's being said here. Those foolish virgins just had the form, the outward appearance of being part of Christ's church. But there was no life within them. And in this time, there will be people in churches all over the world who have no oil but just lamps. Brethren, sisters, make sure you're not one of those. Make sure there'll be many people on Judgment Day that will look at Jesus and say, But I had a lamp, Jesus. I was in the party with the other virgins. I went to church every Sunday. I tried to be a good person. And he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. It's no use just having the outward form of Christianity, is it? We must have the spirit and life with us. We must be born again. We must hate sin. We must love Christ. We must be reliant on his grace at all times. And what's great is that this work of being readied and purified making ourselves ready. It says in Revelation, doesn't it, that 19, I think it's Revelation 19, verse 8, it says it was granted to her. It was granted to us, to the bride, to ready ourselves. It was granted to us. So what does that mean? It means that God himself gave us, the bride, the power and the ability to make ourselves ready. So yes, it's our job. We must purify ourselves. We must get rid of indwelling sin in our lives. We must make war with unholy practices. We must get any worldliness that lives inside our hearts and inside this church out because we're waiting for our bridegroom. However, it's not our work ultimately. There's no reason for boasting. It's all of him. Spurgeon says, to her it was granted. This is a gift of sovereign grace, the free gift of her own beloved. To her it was granted. She had a grant from the throne, a royal grant, an indisputable right. We also go to heaven by royal grant. We have nothing of our own to carry us there by right. Nothing of boasted merit. But to us, it is also granted acceptance in the beloved. Oh, it is a glorious thing to hold, own, sorry, to hold your own letters patent under the great seal of heaven, where we shall be united to Jesus, ever the blessed Lamb. In endless wedlock, all our fitness to be there will be ours, not by our own works, but by free grant. So I want to invite you to stand with me. Second Timothy 2, 19-22 says, If anyone cleanses themselves from what is dishonorable, they will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace.
I want for us to remember that we are Christ's beloved today. I want for us to remember that because that's where the power and the strength comes from to flee from these youthful passions. We can't do it just by trying harder. I, I think the ability to become more holy comes from actually a deeper revelation of Christ's love for us. We read earlier, didn't we, about Song of Solomon being a picture of Christ in his church. Let me just read this, verse 7 from chapter 4. This is Solomon speaking to his bride-to-be. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. You are altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. There's no flaw in you. That's how Jesus sees you. You are altogether beautiful. My love, there is no flaw in you. That's how Christ sees us. How many of you struggle sometimes to believe that Jesus loves you? He loves you. He loves you with a purifying love. Let's put our hands out before us and let's just pray right now. Father, we pray right now that you would give us a greater understanding of your love for us. Because it's that love that gives us the power to live for you. To understand that we are your bride. We've been set apart from all of the multitude of the world. You've chosen us to be your own. And Lord, we pray that we would know that we are loved. Even though our bridegroom is away preparing a place for us, we pray that we would know his love through the Holy Spirit today in a profound way. You'd know you're chosen, you're loved, you're cherished. That when Jesus looks at you, he says, you're beautiful. You are beautiful and there is no flaw in you. You'd know that you belong to him. And one day, one day he's going to return. And he's going to take you and all of us who are his to be with him. To be with him in that place that he's prepared for us. And we pray, Lord God, in this time that you would give us power to repent of any impurity in our lives, Lord. Anything that we need to get fixed in this betrothal period. Lord, whether there's infidelity, whether there's unfaithfulness, whether there are practices that we know we're doing that we just, we've got to get rid of. Lord, we, we bring them before you and we confess. And we approach that throne of grace boldly today. We confess and we ask, Lord God, for forgiveness and for the power through the Holy Spirit to renounce these deeds, to flee from these youthful lusts, and instead to make for ourselves fine, pure linen, as befits a pure bride, ready for her bridegroom to come and to take her. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing one final song together.